I think Jesus is a person who challenges us out of love and therefore in this day to day would be somebody who would make people pretty uncomfortable because he's speaking truth in a way that people aren't ready for, but that they need to hear and they know it. Welcome to the Spirit is Lit podcast, a spirit-centered podcast. Join us each week for a conversation on faith, current events, and everything in between. Hey folks, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Jacob DeRussia, and this week we have a wonderful guest. Her name is Kayla The Best. August. That's not her middle name, but uh, she's the best. She was uh, actually my campus minister at uh, my in my undergrad at uh, Loyola, Loyola University, New Orleans. She's fantastic. She's basically a celebrity. She's like the bomb. So uh, this week, we uh, this podcast, uh, her and I talked about um, a little bit about her one of uh, her articles that she just uh, had published um, on uh, racial justice and how to be an ally in the fight in the fight and struggle for racial uh, justice, as well as um, her pursuing of a PhD in preaching and specifically kind of um, women's voice and women's voice uh, within the context of the church, the Catholic church. So here it is. Kayla August, welcome to the podcast. It's so good to see you. So good to see you. Oh my gosh, it's been so long. Yes. So um, for our listeners, could you uh, just kind of explain, you know, who is Kayla August? And can you tell us kind of just, just a bit about who you are and you know, what you do and just like really how you ended up there? Yes, for sure. So um, me and Jacob go back to my Loyola University days in undergrad. Um, and I was actually an intern when he um, was studying there. So I got my master's in pastoral counseling from Loyola's Institute of Ministry. Um, and then I went on to work at Notre Dame, where I worked in their campus ministry department, um, which was a beautiful gift to my life. And I am still in South Bend. I now work as a rector of Lions Hall, um, which is a hall of about 182 women, where I am both the uh, leader of the hall, as far as like head of all the administrative, but also the pastoral head of the hall, which is the beauty part about the faith. Um, and I would say what brought me here all the way from New Orleans is definitely the call of God because it is snowing here. And I never thought that I would be anywhere with the snow and the cold unless Jesus brought me there. So, you know, God is good. Um, <laughs> but I think in the long run, when I look back, um, it was just listening to God's call throughout my life and um, little by little seeing where my gifts meet the world's needs. And I realized that I have a gift for building community and telling the world about God and speaking to him in ways that um, hopefully open people's minds and hearts. And so that has brought me here to do ministry with college students at Notre Dame. So you were basically, you know, a legend at Loyola um, and you this still so are. not true, people on podcasts. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and when you, when, you know, when, uh, you know, when the bars are you set and you think you can't cross that bar, you go ahead and cross it again. So you recently published this, uh, an article in the Grotto called um, how to be an ally in the fight for uh, racial justice. Um, can you explain kind of insp inspiration behind this particular article? Definitely. Um, <laughs> this article, a little side note, actually came from a journals that I was writing uh, after the summer. So this summer, um, we all know George Floyd died under the knee of a policeman. Um, and it was clearly 
an awakening for our country and our world of racism still present. I think we often see racism as that thing that was in the past, but not something that is really present and pervasive in our lives right now. Um, and it awakened people that, oh my gosh, what I am missing and not seeing is so present in our lives. And with that, I saw people's Facebook posts and Twitters and general world and populace and news all swirling about um, this event and different racial events that were happening around the, around the country. And for my friends and the good people in my life, I think it called them to attention of saying, what can I do? What is my part in this? Like, this is clearly bad. I didn't realize how bad it was. And I want to make sure it doesn't continue. And the call of their hearts had them asking the right questions, but I don't know that they were getting always the answers that they needed in order to act. And so I was asking myself, as a person of color, what does it take to be a good ally? Because people have been coming and asking me that question. Um, people from high school, people from my normal day of life, like kind of just on like sending me emails and different texts about it. And I decided I'm going to write it down. If you really want to be an ally, what does it take? And it's probably hard for some people to chew. I'm not sure about that, but um, I think it was as honest as I could tell it about what an ally really means. And if you want to be it, what it would take from you in order to achieve that. That kind of reminds me um, of, you know, as us being Catholics and Pope Francis is pretty awesome. He's always talking about this idea of culture of encounter. Do you see any um, tie between this idea of culture of, the, of having a culture of encounter and um, the fight for racial justice? Um, I actually definitely see that, like the culture of encounter mixed with the, the fight for racial justice, because the culture of encounter um, is about faith in the way that Jesus encountered others, those who or different from him, those who um, might have seen the world differently, and also those who might have been forgotten or lost, right? Um, and that God meets us where we are, and we need to meet other people where they are. And I think for me in Right for Racial Justice, that means that we don't all have the same experiences in our lives, particularly if you're the majority culture versus the minority culture, but we need to ask ourselves where we come together. And in those moments when we come together, are we listening to each other? Are we learning from each other? Are we taking each other's experiences into account as we move forward. Because if not, then we're saying that only one piece of God's infinite puzzle, right, has the right answers. Um, only one piece of God's beautiful um, array of the world and of people um, is the way. And I think together we find that we all have something to offer that gets us to the next point. Gotcha. So, I mean, you've, you've kind of already touched on it a little bit. Um, and, and I think it's it's pretty evident in your article, but can you explain, um, you talk about it, uh, can you explain when you say that uh, white folks have the, this kind of privilege to be able to go back to, you know, a quote, normal that is safe where people of color don't, can you kind of explain a little bit, um, I guess, maybe the context and what that looks like? Yeah, I do. Um, so for me, I think I'm actually writing another article called A World Not My Own right now, um, which will be posted in the grotto soon as well. But to me, it calls me back to this, there's a white normativity definitely is the best way to say it in the US. And it's this cultural norm that says the things that are white are normal and the things that are not white are other. And I think we see it in, in a variety of ways throughout um, the world of what we kind of affirm or hold up of the things that are on TV, um, and are seen as like, this is the average day to day. But I think it's also seen in not only the images, but the way we interact with each other. And honestly, um, I even think when I learned like American history, 
how much of that was black history, right? Or any of any other, any other um, minority culture history. Um, or even when we look at great American literature, it's, it's white literature nine times out of 10. And so when we're seeing this, we're saying that there is a certain norm that is out there and this is the view of the world and this is the way the world works but it's the way the world works for those people. And I think if you are in the minority, then there's so much of your cultural experience that is not seen and not heard and not recognized, um, or if recognized, it's recognized as you know a unique mix, you know, and other are spicing it up of life, but not necessarily this is our day to day. And so while that is that shows itself in the kind of entertainment realm and, and even in maybe our neighborhoods, I think it also shows it in, in justice. Um, when we look at our prison system, I mean, who are the majority of faces in there? When we look at, at so many, um, even who's pulled over, right, <laughs> for different things. And I think when I look at that, I continue to see um, an unjust balance of who we call out and who we overlook for things. Um, and for me, as a woman, I would even say that there's a difference, right, from uh, you being a male. I think about being a woman walking alone at night, what I prepare myself for, how close my car is parked to any building I go into, um, who making sure I walk back with a friend or even sometimes have someone on the phone to make sure that I am safe. Um, and as a person of color, I have a, now another layer of the things I have to, that I have to be aware of in those moments. Um, and I even think about, excuse me, um, when a cousin or a friend gets pulled over and how they prepare to meet the police officer um, or, in, in bigger moments when they're walking down the street, um, the people who might cross the street to the other side are being nervous when they come in as opposed to the white person in front of them. I think there are so many little moments where as a person of color, particularly if you're uh, a, a black male in, in this society, that people automatically assume that you are dangerous. And if people are assuming that you are dangerous to them, then the way that they respond to you is in fear or in self-defense. Um, and if that, if you really aren't posing any danger to them and you were just living your life, then that actually puts you in an, in an area of self-defense to say, how can I keep myself safe in a world that it's going to assume the worst of me, even if it's not true. So I guess maybe if I could kind of rephrase it, see if I'm understanding correctly, like the, this whole, um, so basically, um, kind of white normativity could be maybe um, basically this dominant culture that um, where if someone who is a part of this, this, if they identify within some realm of this particular culture, like let's say they're um, white or maybe they're male, um, the things that uh, make life easier for them are just sort of normal. Um, and they might not recognize it that like someone else who might not look like them or might not identify in a particular way has a, a harder time in life because of certain circumstances is that my kind of for sure and i think that's so articulated thank you and i think just to see a world that this is the hard part of seeing a world that is catered to you you don't actually have to see it because you've already been served right so the fact that someone else is saying hey you haven't made space for me or this actually hasn't included me you're like well that can't be true it's always included me and i say it has included you you're right look around you who else that is different has a different life experience, a different uh, color of skin, a different um, um, speech pattern, anything might be in that space and feeling the same comfort that you do. Nine times out of 10, it's very few. And that's because that space hasn't been made for them. And if they enter into your space, they have to acclimate to your way of being because the way that they continue to be in other spaces might not be allowed. Gotcha. Um, and I know this isn't like 
people of color's duty, but I'm wondering if there's like, um, for all people, I guess, folks who might be uh, encountering others or helping others along this journey, because um, there's obviously uh, kind of what we're talking about is reminding me of what might be called white fragility, male fragility. Um, mm -hmm. So how does anyone, if they feel called to, they're not, you know, no one has the duty, but how would one maybe sit with, sit with another person, um, maybe be pastorally um, sensitive to someone else's journey through that so that we can kind of move forward together? Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts or tips or critiques or anything like that. For sure. I think the number one thing I always say is like, it's not, as you said to Jacob already, but I want to restate, it is not the person of color's job to educate you. It is not. And that is exhausting to ask someone who is already living this experience to then educate you about their experience and possibly even open up past trauma that is a part of that experience. Um, so what I would say is it's about engagement. Um, it's about like, if you want to learn from somebody by being their friend, then be their friend. Um, listen to their story, learn from the things they tell you and don't question what they're telling you and say like, I need you to show me a receipt for your experience, right? Just because it isn't yours, you know? Um, I think in those moments, we're able to take things in. I think the second part is doing work to read and study. I. Um, one of my students asked me about this too, like, you know, Kayla, how do I become an ally? What can I be doing? Um, and I brought to them a, a, a question posed to me about Christianity. Um, a friend once talked about a preacher that she had that said, if someone called you a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you of it, right? By the way you live your life, by who you interact with, by the people you meet and, and the love you give. Um, and I think it's such a good question. And I think about that with so many things. If someone called you loving, would they have enough, you know, to could you have somebody called you courageous? If someone called you an ally, would they have enough evidence to convict you of it by what you read, by who you talk to, by where you put your body in the spaces that you actually open to listen? Um, there's books that you can be reading. There's articles. There's people who have been speaking about this topic and continue to. If you never venture into listening to them, but you say, I do want to be on your, I, I want to fight beside you, then how can you possibly know what this fight is about? Or what are the things that you need to be aware of in your own life that might be causing this fight to continue? I think that that encourages, it It needs to encourage people to look inward and say, I have to start with myself. And after I look into my own heart and see the things that I might want to address within that, then I can also turn outward and say, what can I do for the world around me? Gotcha. So um, you've spoken a little bit, of, we've talked a little bit about um, kind of women's experience and all of this. Um, and I wanted to touch, maybe pivot a little bit on um, the, so, so I understand you, you, we spoke a little bit, you're pursuing a PhD, focusing on preaching. And uh, I think you, you mentioned a little bit on a uh, woman's voice in the church. Um, could you, uh, is there, do you have any like specific uh, interest within this, uh, within this study of preaching? Oh my gosh. Yes. I'm a passionate, I'm very passionate about it. Um, I, I am getting my PhD, uh, hoping to get my PhD in preaching. I'm applying to places right now. And I just think it's about representation so much for me. Um, I grew up in the church and the church is a very Eurocentric perspective of, of the world in itself. Um, and being in the pews in that way and not seeing a reflection of myself, not only on the altar, but often around me in leadership positions, even in the choir, right? Um, it, it gives a, a view of God that says, oh, God is this one way as opposed to God is Catholic in name, universal, right? We're all a part of this beautiful body. Um, so for me, not seeing that representation growing up at CYO conferences, at different things that I was at, 
I decided I want to become that. I want to become the thing that I didn't see um, because I know there are young people growing up in our church who want to see themselves as a part of this community and then move into what they see. Um, and so as a woman in the church, particularly, I don't know that um, our church has really identified in the best ways that the ways to to use women in leadership positions um, across our church. And we see that and we're and we're still even right now. Right. People are um, wanting the female diaconate to happen. Um, these kind of spaces where we allow female voices to be, you know, at the altar talking about Christ in their lives and, and their experience with the church. So. For me, it's about moving into that and saying, I want to be ready and prepared. I always say, um, if the female diaconate opened up tomorrow, I'd be like, put me in coach. I've been waiting my whole life. I am ready <laughs> like, to go and do this. Um, and I think there are so many other women around me who are ready to be leaders in the church that they love too. So I love that. So um, you spoke uh, kind of on um, representation. Um, and I'm wondering if, uh, if this idea of, you know, our God language, uh, how we refer to God, how we maybe even how we pray, how, how does that have a, have an impact on maybe us being more gender inclusive? Definitely. Um, I think for me, I'm, I'm, I, you can use whatever you want, but I'm also cognizant when I am doing a communal prayer, um, to say just God, um, not necessarily use a gender within that because I think, um, God, God is a divine being um, who is so, it breaks outside of gender, right? And of course we have in the scriptures, we, we reference God as father. Um, and so if you want to reference God as father, of course do so. But I think in the scriptures, we also reference God in so many ways. Um, and so for me, it's about um, the expansiveness of God, that we don't limit God by saying God is only one way because um, God is is in all and he is our all in all, right? And so by the by opening up how we address God, we open up who God can be to us and others. And I always feel like that is the way that when I am entering into prayer with myself and with others, I want to make sure that I allow that space to be um, the expanse of God that I know and love. Gotcha, love it. So um, maybe just to recap a little bit um, on, we talked a little bit about racial justice, we talked about women's voice in church. Um, what do you think, churches can do to continue this, you know, this, this fight for equality. Definitely. Whew. That's, that's a good question. Cause there's just so much we can do and that's, and, and like, where do you begin? Right. Um, I think, can I start with saying something that shocked me? I was shocked by people's shock this summer. <laughs> and I don't know if that is something that maybe is, is something that you've noticed, but people were so flabbergasted about this moment. And for me as a black individual, it seemed like just another day. It was another day. And it was another video of someone being unjustly treated. And it was another moment when I felt we're going to go to court and it's, and nothing is going to happen and we're going to continue on with our lives. And um, even the outcome for me of Brianna Taylor's trial, I, I remember like taking a moment that day and just need to sit with myself and, and even honestly um, crying a little bit and saying like, this really affected me, but I don't want to bring it into a space where people might not understand why this person who I don't technically know, but I feel like I know in my heart that the outcome um, is hitting my heart in a way that says, this isn't just about you. It's about all of us. And so I say that because I hope that we have a church that realizes it's not just about this person, it's about all of us, right? It's it's not just about um, 
Brianna Taylor. It's not just about um, uh, Ahmaud Aubrey. It's not just about Flando Castile. That's not Tamir Rice. I mean, the number goes on and on of Black lives that have been taken and that the justice system has failed in some way. Um, it's about all of us. So if we really are this united body and a part of our body is saying, do I belong, right? The hand cannot say to the foot, you do not belong. The eye cannot say to the ear, I do not need you. Um, that every time we turn away and don't do something, don't act, don't respond to the situation, we are saying, I do not need you. We are saying that you as a person on the margins isn't really a part of this body. And so I guess I wanna ask my church if we really believe that these voices, these people, these experiences matter, then we need to be able to act on those. Are we giving those voices a space to, to speak about what's going on in their lives? Are we, even in our intentions and in mass, I think of this all the time, what do we highlight? What do we highlight? Because often we highlight the things, we, we pray for the unborn, but then uh, a life is taken of someone, of a person of color, and are we playing for that life too, right? And this truly pro-life system, all of these lives matter. Um, so, I'm saying that because I think our church needs to be aware of the, that their silence speaks. When we don't say something, it says something about what we care about in this body. Um, two, I wanna see the bodies of the church actually standing on the margins. I wanna see them in protest. I wanna see them um, in conversation about, about tough things because that's where Christ would be. And then three, I also wanna see us um, putting our resources where our mouth is, like not just saying we care about these things, but actually giving to people who are in need and giving to organizations that will work for change. Um, because I think that's what Christ would do. Yeah. So, so basically like, um, from what, from what your article, what you wrote in your article, what you're saying is like, um, you know, this, this incident took center stage. It's been happening for a long, for a long time. For some reason, you know, a lot of people were shocked and it's not the end. There's been multiple cases um, that have happened beyond the big George Floyd incident. Um, and then um, kind of what, you're, what, what you just talked about as well as within the articles, like people who, who want to be allies, you, you know, just deserve a cookie uh, because because you did one. But it's it seems like what, what you're saying is like it's it should become a way of life for us as Christians. Um, is that is that kind of um, is that kind of. Okay. And I don't want your allyship to be. I feel like I've seen a lot of people whose allyship seems more about them than about the cause. It's like, I don't want to be considered racist or I don't want to be uncomfortable with people telling me that I need to change. So what do I need to do so that people can stop asking me these questions? What do I need to do so that I can be seen as a good person and move on? But the thing about being an ally, the thing about being in a fight for justice is justice is not achieved overnight. It's a day in and day out fight and it's a thing that we have to stand by each other in moments when it's uncomfortable and when we're tired and when we know that this is what God wants us to do so we keep marching forward and that means that it's not just going to be over when you wrap it up and you sit down it means that it requires getting up the next day and asking okay today what are the small and big ways that I can really fight for change and they're not going to be easy and I need to do them anyway like so let's say like I mean just from my experience as someone who's not, who doesn't identify as black, who doesn't identify as a woman, you know, there's been, you know, there might be instances where someone might tell me something like, oh, like I thought I was, you know, fighting for social justice or whatever, but there's, you know, I, I step in my own crap sometimes and sometimes people have to call me out. But I think that's, um, it seems to me that what you're saying is that that goes back to like this culture of encounter where we um, where we're maybe humble enough to, to listen and say, hey, um, I still wanna fight for racial justice. 
um, or you know social justice in general, but um, but have that humility when maybe we don't do it as best as we could. Definitely, and I, um, it was Pope Francis who said we um, listen humbly and speak courageously. There's something about, yeah, I mean, the man has tons of great things he says, but I love that, that like part of it is listen humbly saying like, I don't know everything and I don't know all that you've experienced, but I, I want to be able to know. And I'm going to listen with an open mind that I might not know it all. And then speak courageously in moments when we always think the courageous moments are like when we're like on a podium, like Martin Luther King kind of talking about like racial justice in the world. But sometimes the most courageous moments was when you're in a room with your five closest friends and someone says something that you know wasn't right. And you have to say something that will make everybody uncomfortable in the room because you brought up that that's not okay. But that's courageous because those moments are what people sit with later and those invite real change. So Caleb, um, being that you were uh, at Loyola, and the Jesuit spirituality has a lot of, you know, imaginative imagination. Yeah. So where would you imagine uh, Jesus be in, uh, you know, these situations? Pretend like he didn't, he didn't come like 2000 years ago. He came like for the first time um, in 2020. What kind of, what kind of things do you think he'd be doing? Ooh. Wow. Jesus is so amazing. Um, let me think. Uh, <laughs> guys talking to a minister. Don't, I get really excited when I think about hanging out with Jesus. Um, First of all, I, uh, I mean, I think we sometimes, uh, Jesus is so prophetic, obviously he said a lot of things that, that changed our world, but I think we have to realize that he was also a man and that he would experience life with us in a, in, in a really direct encounter way. I always think, um, you know, Jesus ate with his friends. He laughed, he, he told stories, he wept when his friend died. Like there were so many real moments with Jesus that he experienced life as a human being like we did. But I think in that humanity, he wasn't afraid to challenge those around him. And so I see Jesus speaking truth to power. I see Jesus inviting people from the margins and not even questioning it. Like, I, just like bringing Zacchaeus down from that tree. I see him, anybody that you would say like, oh, we don't really talk to them or that's somewhere we don't want to make sure that we go. And Jesus would step into that space and say, where is God? How can I make sure that you as a person on the margins is seen, loved and heard? And we're going to bring you in. I think Jesus is a person who challenges us out of love and therefore in this day to day would be somebody who would make people pretty uncomfortable because he's speaking truth in a way that people aren't ready for, but that they need to hear and they know it. Um, and I think about the Pharisees of our day, like who are those people in our lives? Who are the people who say that they are people of faith, but aren't living it or are living by the law, but not living by love. And Jesus would challenge them to say, actually, in this moment, God is calling us to more. Actually, in this moment, God is calling you to be better and you to change and not the person that you were pointing your finger at. So speaking of Jesus, who do you think, um, you know, present or past, um, who do you think live, has lived out the best lived out the values of Jesus? Um, well, first of all, we got a lot of saints in there. So I'm going to take them off the table because clearly they were living it. They've been sainted. Um, I'm going to go over, guys, I know it's going to sound like cliche, but he's one of my faves. I'm going to go to Martin Luther King. Um, and I'm, and I'm going to say it because one, he was a preacher. I love to preach. He was a minister. He was an African-American. I mean, so many things that obviously I relate to, but I honestly think that he prayed with his feet. 
it wasn't just about prayer, right? It was about like, I am praying and I know this is what, is, what God is calling me to and I am going to live it out. I am going to lead others. I am going to speak truth to power. I am going to fight for justice in the political realm as well as in the day-to-day -day realm. And it was in a world where we've kind of washed him over as being like everyone loved him. And I'm like, no, they didn't. He was really controversial. He was pushing for change in ways that people didn't want. And they kept telling him, listen, just wait, it'll get there. And he said, wait almost always means never. We can't wait for what is right. The time to do what is right is now. And I think that I am always challenged by him and his words to say like, Martin Luther King, even when it wasn't easy, you eloquently and faithfully spoke for the truth of God and the realities of a world that we want the kingdom to come now, right? A kingdom where we're all invited to the table and how can I be that person? So Martin Luther King, I think is a saint of our time that has not yet been sainted. And I think that if we really followed in his footsteps, we would be challenged to be the people that we want to be, the people who make the world a place where everyone belongs. Nice, I love it. So Kayla, um... Are you ready for the fire round questions? Oh, okay. Yeah, there's a fire round. This is exciting. Okay, yeah, go. This is the, uh, the, the final portion of, of, uh, of our podcast where we shoot rapid fire round questions. So um, as quick as you can, kind of come up with an answer. So uh, first question is, what is your favorite method of prayer right now? Ooh, there's an examine app on my phone. <laughs> And it's the best because they have a different examine for different like moments. So I can like pick one and it guides me through prayer and I've been loving it. Nice. Out. nice, nice. Okay. Next one is if you were Pope for a day, what would you do? Female diaconate tomorrow. Like literally I'd be like, done, let's go. Put me in. Paperwork. Boom, boom, boom. Paperwork. I don't know. <laughs> paperwork. And I'm just like, nope, we're starting it. Let's go. <laughs> Ladies, come on to the table. Come on. <laughs> nice. Okay. Now final question. This is the most, um, controversial, the most philosophical, the most uh, theological question. How many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? Oh, as many as your heart desires. <laughs> nice, nice, that's good, that's good. All right, well, Kayla, it has been so great <laughs> talking to you. Um, good to see you again. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. This has been great to be with you and uh, God is good and you know what? He's a big fan of you, Jacob, I have no doubt. Likewise, I'm pretty sure God's just, more of a, just as much of a fan of you as everyone I know. Oh my God, all right. <laughs> nice to be with you. <laughs> all right, thanks, Kayla. Thanks, everyone, take care.